Thank you to Wildcare and Wildlife Acoustics for sponsoring the Bat Chat podcast. Can you hear that? We can. Wildlife Acoustics creates the world's leading bat acoustic monitoring tools, designed to help scientists make impactful discoveries for our biologically diverse planet, turning this into this. Visit wildlifeacoustics.com to learn more. Wildcare are committed to supporting the ecology industry and are specialists in supplying a large range of monitoring, conservation and habitat management products, as well as equipment hire and service and repair. With a large range of products coupled with friendly and expert help and advice, Wildcare is a favourite supplier for ecologists nationwide. Go to wildcare.co.uk to see the full range and quote BatChat at the checkout for 10% off all bat detectors and bat boxes. A few weeks ago, on an autumnal evening in October, I joined bat legend Daniel Hargreaves at the Rye Harbour Nature Reserve on the coastal boundary of Sussex and Kent, which is about as far southeast as you can go in England, on the hunt for a migratory species of bats. I'm Steve Rowe, and this is Bat Chat. Dan, it's October, it's freezing, the nights are drawing in, and it's quite a dank, miserable evening. What, what on earth are we doing this evening? <laughs> Very good question. Uh. <laughs> um, we're hoping to catch Nephusius pipistrels on their migration, and we know that they migrate at the beginning to end of autumn, and for the past few years, around this time of year, end of September, beginning of October, we've tried to get numerous bat groups down to the southeast of England and hopefully spreading out along the coast we'll be able to intercept bats during their migration. So how long has that project been running for now then? We started the Nefusius project in 2013. There were a number of people working on Nefusius pipistrels before that so we're getting towards probably nearly 10 years now of, of data but the actual Nefusius pipistrel project is probably in its fifth year if we include the pilot project here. And why are we so interested in Methuselah's pipistrels? What was it that actually sparked the interest to find out more about them? Yeah, it's funny, I think because it's got the name pipistrel attached to it, we often think of pipistrels as common species. We've got three species in the UK, and the Nephusius pipistrel in particular, we actually know very little about it. We know that we pick them up, we know that we find them, We've got lots of bat care records, we've got lots of bat detector records, but actually their ecology in the UK, we know very little. And we're learning more year on year, we learn and we find out new information. And um, hopefully one day we'll be able to say pretty much exactly what the Nefusius pipistrelle is doing here. So I should say, I mean, we said we're a long way from home. We're actually in the very southeast corner of England, right down, a stone's throw from Dungeness in the southeast of Kent. How many other bat groups are involved in the project across the, the UK? Across the UK? Um, I should have a count up, really. <laughs> There's 24 groups that are involved. Um, there's three groups now in Wales that are involved, lots across England, a couple in Scotland and the Northern Ireland um, Nefusius Pipistrel project as well. So lots of groups. When we started, it was four groups. So it's um, everybody's joined on the bandwagon, which is a very good thing for Nefusius Pipistrels because they're not really interested in counties or borders or back groups. They're just interested in the landscape and, and moving across it. So for listeners who might not be that involved in um, back groups and are just general BST members, how are we catching these bats and 
and what are we doing with them once we've got them? Okay, so we've got a methodology set up, which is basically we've got harp traps and mist nets. And we've discovered really that to catch Nefusius pipistrels, you need to be playing a call. So we need something to be able to lure the Nefusius pipistrel in. And we found that the best call to use is a male advertisement call. This is a male calling out to try and attract females. So we've copied his call and we're playing it from a speaker mounted next to a harp trap or a mist net. And we're hoping that will attract the bats so that we can catch them once we've caught them. It's a case of taking over air biometrics, over data to make sure it is an effusious pipistrel. Look at the sex, look at the reproductive status. And we put a small metal ring on there and the ring has got a unique number on it. And that means if we catch that individual again, we know exactly where it came from. And have, have any of the ring bats that we've caught turned up elsewhere? Yes, we've had several recoveries. We've had a lot of recoveries from site to site. So last night, for instance, we caught a Nefusius pipistrel that was, um, it was caught at the same site last year. But long distance record, we've had three records of bats leaving the UK and being found um, further across Europe, East Europe, Holland, Poland and Belgium, which has been really good. And we've had several captures of bats flying here that have been rung in other countries, so namely Lithuania and Latvia. So you said that very calmly, as if it's nothing <laughs> at all. That clearly means the bats are flying across the North Sea, Yes. presumably more than once a year? Yes, yeah, we, we're unsure of how many. It's, I did say that calmly, but I remember sat here at Rye several years ago when we caught the first bat um, from overseas, and I wasn't quite as calm then. But <laughs> now that we've had several recaptures, we're starting to understand what these bats are doing, and they are moving en masse across Europe. And... Um, it's quite, you know, it's quite remarkable to think of an animal that's, you know, a little larger than your thumb, weighing seven or eight grams, being able to fly these incredible distances. And um, we're quite lucky that they're coming, heading to the UK as well, where we can intercept them. So, I mean, you said bats are moving across Europe. Do we know whether they're, what their migration pattern is? Are they spending the summers here or the winters here? Or how, do we know, what do we know about their migration so Yeah, far? we think mainly spending the winters here. There are bats that are definitely spending their summers here, mm -hmm. but we know that they're avoiding the really cold climates in northeastern Europe and they're heading on this southwest trajectory and that's bringing them down into warmer climates like the UK, down into France, perhaps as far as Spain. And um, really it's a strategy that's probably been going on for years and years and years and um, it's a way of them avoiding a harsh winter and being able to feed here, fatten up over winter and survive. And then most likely heading back in spring to, to other places. And at the start of the project, people were taking fur clippings of bats for something called isotoponaltis. Can you just tell us what the purpose of that was and what the results of that were? Yes, we were a little bit worried at the beginning that we'd, to catch a bat with a ring on it would be almost impossible. We were sort of... We envisaged that we'd have to ring thousands of bats to get a recovery. That wasn't, wasn't the case. But when we first started, we thought if we could take a fur clipping and then we could take that to the lab and the lab could have a look at the stable isotopes that were being put down in that fur clipping and that would give us an indication possibly of where the bat's origin was. So where, they, where they've been feeding, where they've been drinking, what they've been eating would be laid down in, in the fur clipping, in the fur and then we'd be able to sample that. And the data came back suggesting that they were coming from northeastern Europe. 
and um, we were a little bit sceptical when the data first came out. We thought it seems like a long way that these bats could have flown. But what's been really good is the ring recaptures have confirmed that that's where the, the bats were originating. So we're out in Kent at this place called Rye. Um, how many other people are out? How many groups are out from? And are they presumably they all from Kent Back Group or? No, it's a mixture. There's a few groups. So Kent Back Group have got um, four sites that they're doing. Um, Sussex are out here at Rye, one back group, and there's several back groups that have joined in. So we've got people that have travelled from Somerset, you've travelled from Derby, Steve, <laughs> had lots of different groups join in, which is really great because it's a way of getting back workers to work together to get people to come en masse. If it was one back group, they could probably cover one or two sites perhaps in a night if they were lucky. But by teaming up, we can cover several sites. And when we did this a few years ago, we were very lucky to have a bat that was caught with one group. It then left and an hour and a half later, another group caught it further along the course. So it was a good way of determining the movement of bats and how long it takes them to cover distances. And what is it about bat work in the UK that sparks people interest and enthusiasm and gets them to come out on evenings like this and get involved? I think it's just the fascination. It's the fact that at any moment, any of the people that are out tonight could walk over to a harp trap or a mist net and catch an animal that's flown in from thousands of kilometres away and learn something new that nobody knows about or nobody's ever seen before. And I think that gives us a unique opportunity. Um, often, you know, there's a lot of people that go out bird watching and they get a lot of satisfaction from seeing different birds or birds moving long distances. To be able to do that in settings like this, I think is what appeals to us. And what was it that sparked your love of bats in the in the first place? What kicked it all off? <laughs> it was a primary school project on bats. We had to choose an animal, and I can't remember why, but I chose bats. And I, um, I did a, a lovely little project on it, and I purchased a book called Which Bat Is It? by Bob Stebbins. I remember paying £3.50 for it. I still have that book. I treasure it. And um, at the age of seven, I don't know why I was fascinated in the penis shapes of bats or the dentition of a whiskered hub ranch bat but it was slightly unusual I should have been reading <laughs> children's books but I was fascinated by this book and then later that summer I was asked to rescue um, rescue a bat from the school kitchen or the school canteen and um, really I wasn't rescuing a bat I was rescuing the dinner ladies that were all <laughs> screaming and cowering in a corner and after that I just fell in love with them and I've been studying them ever since. And what can we do as bat groups to inspire younger people to get involved? Because at some point we're not going to be here. What, what is it that we need to do? Yeah, I think we just need to get them involved. We need to, to reach out to them, really. It's very easy for us that are driving around and working at night to ignore children completely. But if it wasn't for me being at school doing a small project on bats, I wouldn't be sat here doing this now. So I think even sometimes if it feels futile or you think the children aren't listening, it only takes one or two individuals to get an interest and you never know where that's going to lead them. And I think we should always be thinking about young people and the next generation of bat workers that are going to come through. And the best time to capture somebody's imagination is when they've got an open mind and that's often when they're a child. And turning away from the UK for a moment, you've also set up a very successful project on the Caribbean island of Trinidad, which you've charismatically called Trinibats. How did that come about and what made you want to set that project up? Yeah, that was an interesting, interesting um, route, really. We, I went to Trinidad in 2009 with Bat Conservation International on one of their Founders Circle trips. 
and while there I met Geoffrey Gomes and Geoffrey was the back worker really in Trinidad and Tobago. It's, it's not like the UK if you asked how many people are interested in bats, it was just Geoffrey. Mm. He was the only member really of, uh, of what, you know, what we wouldn't see as a bat group in Trinidad. And the problem was Geoffrey was saying that bats in Trinidad, they were, the regulations stated that they were vermin. And to try to get any sort of funding or money to study vermin was nigh on impossible. And we thought, well, obviously they're not vermin. There were 68 species of bats in Trinidad and Tobago, and over half of them were pollinators and seed dispersers. And, you know, not just about what they're doing as, as um, pest controllers. So it was interesting that a country could class something as vermin that they knew very little about. So I spoke to Geoffrey and he said, you know, I'd love to harness some of the energy from the UK, from the rest of the world, get people interested in bats. What can we do about it? So I thought, okay, well, the Caribbean sounds like a nice place to work. And I'm sure if you ask many bat workers, do they fancy a couple of weeks on the Caribbean looking at exotic bats, that they'd say yes. So that's how it was born, really. We started doing ecotourism trips and um, we started a, an NGO called Trini Bats and the rest is history. We've been doing that for... 10 years, it's been very successful. We've managed to change for legislation. So bats aren't classed as vermin anymore. They are a protected species. But more importantly, we've done a lot of social outreach to people and we have a big Facebook page and it's opened people's minds about bats. They was mysterious creatures that never, nobody ever saw. And geoffrey has been very proactive on social media and that's generated a lot of interest and um, people are interested in what we are doing, which can only only benefit the bats. And out of those 68 species, are there any out there that we would recognise from the UK? We wouldn't. There's several myotis species that are as difficult to um, identify as some of, some of our species. Um, but really, a lot of them are doing similar roles to what, to what our bats are doing over here. So you won't, there wouldn't be any bats, for instance, that you would find here or you would find in the Caribbean. But the myotis bats are out there. The rest of the bats are all fruit, nectar, seed dispersers and carnivorous bats. There's fishing bats out there. But if you look at what they're doing in the environment, it's exactly the same as what our bats are doing here. They've all found their niche of um, a way of feeding a niche ecology. And, you know, it's the same as our bats. We've just got far fewer of them. And presumably it's got the advantage of you don't have to go into hibernation over the winter over there. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. You've got food all year round, but you have different seasons. So you have a dry and a wet season. And you've, exactly like the bats here, they've got to, to um, be able to change their behaviour to match the season. So they might be eating certain fruits in the wet season. They might switch to, to flowers in the dry season. And same for insectivorous bats. So you would get migratory bats through the Caribbean that would need to move to find more food or to find better breeding grounds. Briefly describe the island for us. You know, presumably we're thinking it's a tropical place with lots of rainforests. How sort of how large is it? What's what sort of habitats are out there? Interesting. Yeah, it's um, so Trinidad. Tobago's a lot smaller. Tobago's north of Trinidad. But if you look on a map, you've got Venezuela, and then right next to it, only seven kilometres off the coast, you've got Trinidad. And it's not it's not a big island. Its shape is a bit like Wales, but much smaller. You could probably drive north to south in half a day. Um, it's not a huge island, but it's got lots of mixed habitat. And because it's so close to Venezuela, the fauna and the, 
the environment really represent Venezuela, as in South America, than what they do the rest of the Caribbean. It's a unique island, 68 species of bats. It's unparalleled in the rest of the Caribbean. Mm. And um, what's what's been good for Trinidad and Tobago, there's lots of lots of hills, lots of ridges, lots of areas that are difficult to cultivate. And I think that's what's really helped protect the forest. And they've got lots of protected reserves out there and they've got some urban areas mixed in and that's why you get such a diversity of, of species. And just before we go and check the heart traps that we've got set up tonight, what do you think the future of bat conservation holds for us? Um, good question really. It's often People often think we need to conserve the bats, we need to be helping the bats as much as possible and really it's about looking after the environment and looking at what the bats need and what we can do as individuals to support that so um, early days it was all about trying to see what bats we have working out what bats are where and really what we should be doing is looking at what the bats need from us what they need from the environment what sort of landscape they need what sort of scale of landscape do they need and that's what I think we should be we should be looking at and there's a few ways of doing that but one is educating people that you know we need to understand what the bats need and then people need to understand that but also the damage that we are potentially causing just by the way that we are living. So I think, you know, thinking for the future, I think we're in a very good place at the minute in the UK. There's lots of people that are interested in helping the environment, but they're interested in it and not necessarily taking action to do it. And I think that's the next stage, really, is to say, if you do this, it's going to benefit these animals by this. And I think that's probably what we need to push on. Great, thanks. Better go check your heart trap. Excellent. This audible clicking you can hear is the sound of the acoustic lure which is set up at this heart trap, but if we slow it down by 10 times, this is what it sounds like. So it's about 20 past 8 and we've just pulled out our third Nethusias. And what sort of things are we looking for? Detail. So to make sure everything's accurate, we have a data sheet that all the teams are following. We're looking for biometric data. So the weights, the measurements, the forearm and identification features. So I'm just weighing the bat in the bag now, which is 38.5. Quickly take him or her out of the bag. easy math 28.5 bats weighing 10 grams which is not a lot really if you think about probably the same as what a 50 pence piece slightly less and do male and female bats have different weights for the same species yeah we've noticed lately that females are slightly heavier than the males but i think that's just the time of year males are slightly more active they've got other things on their mind I think the females are spending a bit more time feeding. I'm just going to measure the forearm. Which is 
and we'll also measure her fifth finger which gives us an indication of the species we know what species it is it's quite easy to tell a pipistrelle weighing 10 grams is really quite large we often think of things like dobentons and natteras a 10 gram natteras would be a big bat but a pipistrelle is even bigger fifth finger measurement 44 so the ratio between the length of the fifth finger and the forearm often for nefugious pipistrels is greater than 1.25 so we've been collecting that data just to see how accurate that is so in the future we can reliably say if it's an identification feature or not but just looking at this pipistrel while it's in my hand it's much larger than a standard pipistrel it's got incredibly dense shaggy fur and the underside is slightly paler and on the back it's sort of a white creamy colour where the dorsal fur is much browner and you can see it's built for migration really or it's built for long distance flying it's got really strong broad shoulders and this really dense fur to keep it warm and the fur extends about halfway down the tail membrane as I say it's really dense but if you look at the back she's almost all sort of shoulder regions which means she's built for flying we can also look at the venation in the wing where the fibres run and it's a classic nephusius pip if we follow the fifth finger down to the first knuckle joint and follow that fibre there's a, a break going across the cell which is classic for Nefusius pipistrelle. So we've got a female adult Nefusius pipistrelle. She's got a little bit of a nipple, looks like she's possibly bred before, probably earlier this year. And the next thing we want to do is put a ring on her forearm. And we generally ring with ladies on the left and males on the right. And these rings, it's a small metal band that says London Zoo at the top. And then a number below it. And this one is J6420. And we just place that on the forearm and close it down to a gap of about half a mil so it slides up and down the forearm but the fifth finger doesn't catch into it and that ring will stay on her for the rest of her life and if we're lucky when she's recaptured we'll understand exactly where she was caught and we start to get an idea of the age of the animal so once we have all the data we just check check the sheet that it's all written in correctly and then we'll be ready to release her nice you can start to see just under her skin hmm. she's starting to put a lot of fat on <laughs> she's getting ready for the winter so you can actually see visible fat often round by the tail membrane hmm. and on her back this back fat which is going to see her through the winter months when there's less insects flying so she's doing really well for herself Right, she's nice and warm, so we'll let her go and just follow her in our torchlight to make sure she's flown away nicely.
Excellent. Great. That's it for this week, but a small request from us here at BatChat. If you're listening to us via the Apple Podcasts app, we'd love to hear your views about the show using their ratings and reviews box. If you're listening via a different platform, join the conversation online using hashtag BatChat. We're back in two weeks' time talking to the bat workers of Wales. Now, lots of you have seen me in branded t-shirts and hoodies with the BatChat logo on, and you've all been asking me when they'll be available. Well, we're thrilled to let you know that a whole range of BatChat clothing and tote bags is now available for you on our T-Mail store. The link's in the show notes. Whether you're a long-time supporter or a new member of the BatChat family, we can't wait for you to share your photos of you wearing our merch on social media. Be sure to tag the Bat Conservation Trust in your posts. If you're listening to BatChat on Google Podcasts, we wanted to let you know that Google have announced they plan to discontinue their app later this year, so we recommend making the switch to an alternative podcast app, and we've put some links in the show notes to alternative apps that you can follow BatChat on so that you don't miss any future episodes.